Well, merry week before Christmas, everyone. Yes, tis the season, isn't it? And tonight we're kind of going to not have a Christmas message. I'll save that for Pastor Richard. It's his place. But we are going, yeah, that's true. He's, he's still feeling under the weather. He kind of got a bug early in the week. And so we're going to make sure we pray for him and keep him in mind. But it kind of brings to mind a little bit of the topic we are going to look at tonight because, well, let's face it. We've all been through hard times. We've been through trials. And they're not pleasant. And James tells us that we need to be all joyful when these things happen. But to be honest, a lot of times it's about as much fun as getting a letter from the IRS (laughs) or having a root canal. Hard to be joyful in those circumstances, but we're commanded to anyway. And the strongest believers... They have those trials. It doesn't matter if, you know, you've been walking with the Lord for most of your life and you've been doing everything. They still happen. Or if you're a brand new believer, you came to the Lord and you thought, oh, great, now I'm a Christian, and then everything seems to fall in on you. It happens. It's part of what makes our faith stronger. But we're human, and we let the Lord handle this. And that's what we're supposed to. And strange as it may sound, may sound, There's some words that really, to be honest, you always want to hear when things are really down. I've got your back. I'm taking care of you. If you were watching the news recently, you heard similar statements coming out of San Bernardino. Because these guys were giving to their last full measure a great gift that God gave us from the very beginning. Friendship. What exactly is it? What is a friend? We all have our ideas. There are many quotes we can quote from. Let's look at probably the most sterile quote, and that's from Webster's Dictionary. A friend, one attached to another by affection or esteem or a favored companion. Okay. But there's more to it. We know that. C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite writers, I like what he says. Friendship is born at that moment when one person says to another, What? You too? I thought I was the only one. Another writer, he shares, A friend is someone who knows all about you and still loves you. friend of mine in college, he defined a true friend as the person you know that you can call for help at 2 in the morning when your car is broken down in Baker, California, and you are going to respond. Charles Schultz weighs in. The greatest gift is not found in the store, but in the heart of a true friend. Another man, a friend who holds your hand and says the wrong thing, is made of dearer stuff than the one who stays away for fear of saying the wrong thing. And finally, a lot of people can relate to this one, there's nothing better than a friend unless it's a friend with chocolate. (laughs) Well, in today's culture, our concept of friendship has become very, very twisted from what God intended from the beginning. Uh, It's also very vague. I mean, some people measure your friendship by how much money you have. That's wonderful. Or by your social status, or if you're a celebrity. Uh, And what's fascinating, it even happens here at the church. It's amazing how many people want to be the pastor's best buddy. Okay? Or the boon companion of one of the assistant pastors. 
It happens. But really, what's sad is they want nothing to do with an usher or the teacher in the pre-K. Something wrong with that. There are social butterflies out there who have many friends. And in fact, I heard a saying, I'm not sure I agree with it 100%, that a person who is a friend to all is a friend to none. I don't know, but I do know the type who are like that. There are those, and I'll freely admit I'm one of those, that I have one or two very close friends, but very few outside of that little circle. My wife, for example, is my best friend. I'll freely admit that. Okay? Which is rare, apparently. I've heard that. I don't know why. She knows all about me, and she still puts up with me. Isn't that nice? There are those that treasure their friendships. There are others that take their friends for granted. And most of us have been deeply hurt by the betrayal of someone that we once counted as a close friend. So all of us have this picture of who a true friend would be. But the Bible gives us really a good focus on what it is. We're going to look at a couple of these examples that really God gave to us as good friends. And then for us to basically model how we deal with friendship based on what we see. Two are very well known, David and Jonathan. The other friendship, not so well known. In fact, if you blink in the book of Mark, you'll miss it. But we'll take care of it one by one. But during this time, as we look at these friendships, let us keep in mind John 15, 13. What Christ himself said, greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. Keep that in the back of your head, this entire message, okay? Because it will, it will follow us along. So let's go ahead and turn in our Bibles to 1 Samuel. This is familiar territory. We just went through 1 Samuel on Wednesday nights. We're going to be going starting in chapter 18, okay? Unfortunately, there really is no one long connected passage that really talks about the friendship of David and Jonathan. Okay, just a bit here and a bit there, but it's enough for us to understand truly what friendship mean, meant to these guys. While you're heading that way, let's get a little bit of background information. Let's first look at Jonathan. Jonathan was the eldest son of the first king of Israel, Saul. And as we learned, Saul disobeyed the Lord, and basically... Samuel was told by God, you are going to anoint the next king. And after going through all the different sons of Jesse in Bethlehem, God finally said, no, this is the one I want you to anoint. He was the youngest of the group. He was given the job of shepherd, which in that culture was probably the lowest of the low. Okay, But he was God's anointed one. And Samuel anointed him, and he went back out into the fields and kept shepherding. All right? In the meantime, as we move on into chapter, that's in chapter 16, and we move on to chapter 17, David is sent to give supplies to his brothers. There's war going on between Israel and the Philistines. And so David goes out to basically give them some food. And while he's there, of course, we know this is the story of David and Goliath. Goliath is taunting the uh, children of Israel. David says, hey, we can't let this happen. This is a very broad paraphrase. He goes out and fights and wins using God's power behind him in the form of a stone and a slingshot. Amazing. So now 
we come to ver- or chapter 18, and we're going to be looking at the first five verses at this point. David has now come out and made himself known. He's, not bra- he's, he's brave. He's not a coward. Uh, we're not 100% certain just how old he was at this point. Even in this culture, even if you were still under 25 and you were the youngest, you were still considered something of a lad. Okay, But he'd been through a lot. And so now he's, um, Saul talks to him and decides, yeah, I want you in my army. And so starting with verse 1 of chapter 18, now when he had finished speaking to Saul, he being David, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan, Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Saul took him that day and would not let him go home to his father's house anymore. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan took off the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, even to his sword and his bow and his belt. So whenever David went out, wherever, or so David went out wherever Saul sent him and behaved wisely. And Saul set him over the men of war, and he was accepted in the sight of all the people, and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Now we. Some misconceptions that have cropped around. I remember thinking that when I was a a teenager learning these stories. The impression a lot of times is at this point, Jonathan and David were teenagers. Well, sorry, didn't happen that way. They had to be at least 20 years old to fight in the army. Okay? Now, Jonathan, the impression people get, Jonathan was the elder one. After all, he went through two major victories before the business with David and Goliath. He was a, accepted as a commander in the army. He was basically Saul's third in command. He also um, was trusted by his men. If we look in uh, one place, he decides to go into what's essentially a suicide mission against the Philistines, and his armor bearer basically says, yeah, let's go. Guy trusted his faith in God, trusted his judgment. So clearly he was not this youngster who didn't know what he was doing. He was a battle-hardened veteran. And David probably was younger, but he wasn't exactly a tenderfoot either. Now, even though he, this was the only battle David was in with humans against Goliath, remember, by his own admission, he had fought as a shepherd against a lion and a bear. Okay, we're not talking about a little tiny lion or a little teddy bear. We're talking about animals that probably were at least five times his own weight, extremely strong, and very, very hungry. Otherwise, they wouldn't be hunting after the sheep. And he killed them. So he knew how to fight. And as we saw, he was able to apply a lot of what he learned in the field to being a soldier in the army. And then Paul or Saul had placed him in command of the men of war. And in his attitudes, conduct, and service, David was a complete success. And everyone... Saul's servants, the Jewish people, they recognized him and praised him publicly. Again, a young man, a warrior in the prime of life. So it was during this time, during this time after uh, David gets into the household and, and serves Saul and his army, that Jonathan and David began their friendship. And it may have started out as an older veteran basically taking this young warrior under his wing but it blossomed into an um, inseparable bond between the two. Okay? They were bosom buddies, literally. They basically knew each other better than anybody. And it was so great 
that if we look at verse 4 again, we see that there was a sacrificial love involved here. First point I want people to understand about friendship. There's a sacrifice involved. Look at verse 4. Jonathan took off the robe that was on him, gave it to David with his armor, even to his sword and his bow and his belt. Why was this significant? So he lent him his clothes. We do that all the time. Oh, you're cold? Let me give you my jacket. Oh, no, no, no. In Israel, that robe was a sign of royalty. Remember, Jonathan was Saul's eldest son. That means that he had expectations of becoming the next king of Israel. That is just the way things worked. Apparently, somewhere down the line, David shared what had happened with Samuel. Hey, I got anointed. I'm going to be the next king. He didn't lord it over him or anything like that. He just basically mentioned it. And what was Jonathan's response? Cool. Here's the robe. You're the next king. Okay? He basically said, if that's the way God wants it, hey, I'm for that. Let's do it. As we see later on, as we went through, remember when we went through 1 Samuel, these two friends made different promises to each other, covenanted, as the word says. This was more than just, I promise to do this or I promise to do that. This was actually a vow they made before God. And in particular, what David had said is, we, you know, Jonathan was, to, when David became king, Jonathan was basically to rule at his side. Maybe not as a co-regent, but definitely as someone who David could rely upon for advice and for wisdom. And Jonathan was okay being in that number two spot. That's sacrifice. Okay? To be honest, I don't think Jonathan figured that he was going to get killed with his father when he did. But his faith in God was so strong, it didn't matter one whit. He was there for David for the long haul, and David was there for him. Now, as we go through the story, we know that Saul really had no problem with this friendship. After all, this was a new soldier in the army. He really, Saul really relied upon his son in many ways. He figured, yeah, this is a good friendship. But, as we know, David's popularity started to soar. And Saul, well, not that his popularity was sinking, it's just he thought it was. He was starting to get a little paranoid here. And he became jealous. And he started sending David on suicide missions, fully expecting, oh, he's not going to survive this one. And then he comes back, here I am. Oh, great, That's, I'm glad to see you again. That didn't work. Send him off on another one. Now, this is harder, you know. He's back. He is? Oh, that's great. I guess he will marry my daughter. That didn't work. And it got so, so bad that at some point, finally, Saul started ordering his servants. Now, if we move ahead, let's jump ahead now to chapter 19 in 1 Samuel. This is how bad it started getting. And believe it or not, it gets worse. Of course, if you have a memory, you know what's going to happen. Chapter 19, verse 1. Now Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted greatly in David. So Jonathan told David, saying, My father seeks to kill you. Therefore, please be on your guard until morning and stay in a secret place and hide. Now, there's that self-sacrifice again. He, know what, he knows what his dad, the king, said. I want him dead. So does Jonathan be the good soldier, obey orders, and say, oh, well, say, 
Sorry, David, this is it. No, he goes to David and says, hey, get yourself scarce. Dad's trying to kill you. But then after he does that, what does he do? Verse 4, thus Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant, against David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his works have been very good toward you. In essence, why do you want to kill him? He's done nothing but good for you. Verse 5, for he took his life in his hands and killed the Philistine, and the Lord brought about a great deliverance for all Israel, and you saw it and rejoiced. Remember? Why then will you sin against innocent blood to kill David without a cause? Well, Saul heeded the voice of Jonathan, and Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be killed. Basically, his son brought him back to his, sense, his senses. So initially, this, this intervention started to work, but as that paranoia grew, he began to ignore the oath, and we know the story. He started throwing spears at David. Okay? The Lord sent a distressing spirit who was tormenting him, and the only way it would go away for a while was David would play his harp, and as they say, music calms a savage beast. There's a lot of truth in that, especially if you're singing worship songs, those demons get out of there. Okay? We, hear, we feel that when we do worship. Okay? And that's the wonderful thing. But because it was from God, at some point, Saul wouldn't let it go, and there goes the spear. Great guy to have around. At one point, Saul, there basically, Jonathan says, hey, it worked before, let's try it again. Why should he be killed? What has he done? What does Saul do? Throws a spear at Jonathan. Okay, that's not going to work. Off he goes. So here's our second point, loyalty. All through this, Jonathan showed loyalty. He stood firm for his friend, defying even the orders of his own father. And within this loyalty became trust. The two are very closely related. Okay? Trust. Both David and Jonathan trusted each other. In the case of David, he had plenty to lose. I mean, he was on the lamb now. He, he, you know, Saul was out to get him. He didn't have a place to go. They were watching every place he might have been. So if Jonathan suddenly decided, you know, maybe... Being king's a better idea than I thought. Sorry, David. Too bad. I'm gone. David would have been in a, in a bad spot. So he had to trust that Jonathan was going to go through with what he said to do. And he was aware of it. In 1 Samuel 20, you don't have to turn there. I'll read it for you. 1 Samuel 20, verses 8 and 9. David says, Therefore, you shall deal kindly with your servant. This is David talking. For you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. Now notice these next words. Nevertheless, if there is iniquity in me, kill me yourself. For why should you bring me to your father? In essence, he's saying, if I've done something wrong, you might as well just do me in right here and now. But Jonathan said, verse 9, far be it from you. For if I knew certainly that evil was determined by my father to come upon you, then would I not tell you? That's trust. Somehow, all through David's exile, Jonathan knew exactly where he was hiding. And on one occasion, he went to speak to his friend, displaying that their friendship was founded on the Lord. Another key feature of friendship. 
We have loyalty. We have trust. Foundation on the Lord. Self-sacrifice. The last time these two friends met face to face here on earth was recorded in 1 Samuel 23, 16 through 18. Again, don't need to turn there. And it was a word of exhortation. Then Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David in the woods and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Even my father Saul knows that. Basically, don't despair. You're going to get it. You're going to get to the throne, and I'm going to be there with you, and nothing's going to stop us. So the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. Once more, another covenant. David stayed in the woods, and Jonathan went to his own house. To the very end, Jonathan acknowledged and held firm to God's ultimate plan for the kingdom of Israel and stood by it. There's loyalty and friendship there. We know what God's will is. We know what God's plan is for your life. I'm not going to try to take you off the rails from that. I am here, no matter what cost to myself, to make sure that God blooms and blossoms in your life. That's my job as your friend. Jonathan is saying this. As we know, though, Jonathan did not live to see his friend become king. But David... Though he was sorrowful about it, he still stood by that covenant. And in a remarkable act, he took Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, yes, that is a tongue twister, and took him as his own and basically brought him into his palace and let him eat from his table. Why was this so remarkable? Consider the era. If you're a king who had just established a new dynasty, Usually what's done, in fact what's expected, is you kill all the members of the old dynasty, anyone who might have the least amount of claim upon the throne, in order to establish yourself. David's promise, his friendship with Jonathan, prevented that from happening. He said, no, I'm not doing this. You're his only son who's surviving. I want you up here with me. And... Even later, as we're going to see in Second Samuel, when David wrongly accused Mephibosheth of being unfaithful during Absalom's rebellion, he still wouldn't have killed him. He had no desire to. And he repented being mistrustful of the son of his trusted friend. Now, we can look, and if we look at this, we can see a glimmering of Christ in this friendship between those two people. Okay? I want you to consider Philippians 2, 5-8. through 8. If you want to turn there, go ahead. This is a very familiar passage. Okay? And really, to be honest, I would consider this one of the textbook, well, yeah, a textbook for how to operate as a friend. So in Philippians 2, verse 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even 
the death of the cross. Now, actually, I like the way the New Living Translation renders this. Let me read it to you. Your attitude should be the same that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not demand and cling to his rights as God. See the parallel? Though Jonathan had the right of being the eldest son, the crown prince, if you will, he did not cling to that. He made himself nothing. He took the humble position of a slave and appeared in human form. And in human form, he obediently humbled himself even further by dying a criminal's death on the cross. Okay? Jonathan cast aside his rights and so that David could become king. And he knew fully well what he was doing, just as Christ knew exactly what he was in for when he came to earth to die on that cross. And we've been through this around Easter time. The death on the cross is not... Well, saying that is a horrible death is probably an understatement. It's beyond horrible. We're not going to go into detail of it right now. But the bottom line was, any sane person knowing that if I do this, this is what's going to happen to me. Actually, I should rephrase that. Not any sane person, any normal human being would probably look and say, I don't think so. And even Jesus himself, when he was in the, in the garden, when he was praying, he was saying, Lord, if there's any other way we can do this, let's do that. But what else did he say? Not my will, but your will be done. Okay? I know this is the price I'm going to have to pay. I really don't want to do it. But if you want me to, Lord, that's what I'm going to do. And if you look at it, David also had the same humility. He never lorded it over Jonathan that he was the Lord's anointed. He never came around and said, look, I'm the next king, so yeah, you're just going to be number two. Um, be happy with that. Be glad I'm not going to kill you. He never said that. In fact, when he spoke to Jonathan, and we saw this in 1 Samuel, David repeatedly referred to himself as your servant. That was his friend. Both friends regarding themselves as less important as the other. Sound familiar? If you're in Philippians, go back two verses to verse 3. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others as better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for your own interests or his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Christ was obedient also to that plan of salvation, knowing what he had to go through. But he was willing. He was willing to endure it for us. He made it clear that he came to earth to serve. The Son of Man was to serve, not to be served. He made that clear, that I'm not here to lord it over anybody. Consider the fact that Jesus washed the disciples' feet. Now, here's the interesting thing. He washed all their feet, all twelve including Judas Iscariot, knowing full well what Judas was going to do in just a few hours. That goes with the same as salvation. God died for, Jesus died for all of us, knowing full well not all of us are going to take him up on it, knowing, all, knowing what we had done and what we were going to do. Well, maybe he wasn't thinking of Judas as a friend. Remember John 13, 15, 13. Greater love has no man than this, than one give his life for his friends. 
But look in verse 15. You don't have to go there. But if you look at verse 15 in chapter 15, what does he say to his disciples? No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all things that I heard from my father I have made known to you. Everyone was called a friend, including Judas, including Peter. All twelve were called friends. It didn't matter. He, they were his friends as far as Christ was concerned. Unconditional friendship. Even in full knowledge that it wasn't going to be reciprocated. Those friendships, as we saw with Jonathan and David, it was blessed. But let's look at a less known example. Usually people look at this next passage and they're focusing on something else. But let's focus on the friendship aspect. Turn now to the book of Mark. We're now in the New Testament. And we're starting in verse 1. What we see here is a basic little vignette about people being healed, Christ teaching. Okay? Many of you are familiar with the story of the paralytic man. And the focus in this passage usually is in and how Christ had the, had the right to forgive sins. Of course, the scribes and Pharisees had a big, big problem with this idea. But the point was Christ saying, yes, I do have that authority. But let's look at another side of this tale. Verse 1. And again he, meaning Jesus, entered Capernaum after some days... And it was heard that he was in the house. Immediately, many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door. And he preached the word to them. And they, four people, came to him, bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. And some of the scribes who were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were reasoning thus within themselves, he said to them, why do you reason about these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your, sons, your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, arise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed and go to your house. Immediately he rose, took up the bed and went out in the presence of them all, so that all were amazed, glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. So right now I want you to imagine the scenario here. Okay? First off, we have a typical Middle Eastern house of the era. Basically, it's got a flat roof. This roof is built with reeds and some plants covered by mud to hold the whole thing together. And then you have tile on top of that to to protect everything from the weather. And you get up to the roof fairly easily. There's usually a stairway on the outside. Now, this was because the roof was actually a place to retreat to when it was hot. Or if you were a fisherman, a lot of times you would take fish up there to dry in the hot sun. Or you might dry fruit or things like that. 
But it was a very common place for people to go, so it was easy to get to. So, inside the house, you have a very, very large room. It's a common room, essentially, acting kind of like a living room combined with a dining room combined in a kitchen. The poorer families, they usually slept in there as well. So here's Jesus, and it's a fair-sized room. He's standing there, he's preaching, he's saying, you know, all sorts of, 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 of things that we've probably heard elsewhere in Scripture because no one said he never repeated himself. The place is packed inside. Why? Well, in the Middle East, hospitality is one of the basic laws of courtesy. No one needed an invitation, so when they found out Jesus was there, well, let's go. Let's see him. And, of course, Jesus wouldn't turn anyone away. So they packed the place. People were sitting probably really close to where Jesus was. He probably had about as much room as I have in front of this thing. Okay, people were right there. More people were probably standing in the back and around the walls and out the door. And people were looking in through the doorway saying, oh, there he is. And I can hear him. Okay, and there's Jesus teaching. At this point, it doesn't say anything about healing. He's teaching. Okay? The healing, that was yet to come. So now, you've got four guys coming up. They're carrying this fellow on a stretcher, one on each side. They know why they are there. Their friend needs healing. So here they come along, and they look, and they see the crowd, and they stop short and thinking, oh dear, this isn't going to be as easy as we thought. Maybe they had a little doubt in their mind. Maybe even the fellow on the, on the, who was being carried was saying, hey guys, if this is too much trouble, forget it. But they're saying, oh no, no, wait a minute. We can do this. And sure, one of them probably thought, you know, we can't go in through the door. Let's try going in through the roof. Up they go to the top. And Jesus is inside. Now think about how what's happening now. Okay, Jesus is talking. And suddenly there's a little bit of commotion on the roof. Clank, clank, clank. As these tiles are being pushed away. And then as someone's digging away at the mud. Probably a little bit of it coming down as well. And probably even someone up there saying, Hey Charlie, can you see where Jesus is? Are we in the right spot? Guys out front saying, A little to the left. Back. That's perfect. Go for it. Okay, guys, let's get to work. And But the Jesus is just talking, you know. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And he's going on without skipping a beat. And literally the roof's coming down. Now, they're trying, trying to be as careful as they can, but everyone else is kind of taking the cue from Jesus. Okay, let's just kind of ignore what's happening. Then finally, it gets real bright inside the room. Someone turned on the lights. And suddenly, here comes this fellow on a stretcher being let down by ropes. And there's Jesus. There's the fellow on a stretcher. What does Jesus do? First, he looks up. He sees these four guys up there. They're probably looking down at him and thinking, Hi. Does Jesus scold them? Does he say, hey, who's going to pay for that roof? No. What does he do? He saw their faith. 
He saw why they were there. It was a faith so strong that they would not give up on their friend no matter what, even if it meant taking him down through a roof. They knew Jesus could heal them. They had no doubt in their mind, and Jesus knew that, and he applauded it. Then he looked down. There's a sick guy on the mat. Now, some people have asked, well, why did Jesus say, hey, your sins are forgiven? Well, Jesus liked to get to the root of the problem. Now, granted, elsewhere, Jesus makes it clear that not all illnesses or sicknesses are due to sin. But evidently, this fellow, that was the problem. He looked at the root cause of his illness and said, hey, your sins are forgiven. He gave him that peace inside that, hey, guess what? I know what the problem is, and we're going to solve it right here. We're going to solve it right now. Then he healed the body. Rise up and walk. Now, yeah, there was a little discussion about who had the right to do what. Well, we're not focusing on that right now. We look and we see the fellow is forgiven. And he gets up. In verse 12, what do they say? All were amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. A blessing on friendship. Now, how do we do friendship? This is time to start looking into yourselves now, myself included. How do you view friendship? Do you embrace it? Do you enjoy the blessing that the Lord places on that friendship? Or are you fearful of it? Friendship is more than just a friendly smile and passing, or just asking, hey, how's it going? Expecting the, the standard reply, fine. Friendship is when you ask, how's it going? You wait for a true answer. And if suddenly they unload on you, okay, that's what I'm here for. Some people are fearful of it. Now, C.S. Lewis wrote something interesting, and even though I like C.S. Lewis, I don't agree with everything he writes. And this is one of those times where I do have a disagreement. He wrote, friendship is unnecessary, like philosophy, like art, like the universe itself, for God did not need to create us. It has no survival value. Rather, it is one of those things which give value to survival. Think about that. This is something we can't really do without. Is it really unnecessary? I disagree. I think it is very necessary because at the very beginning, when God created man, the whole creation was good, except it is not good for man to be alone. Not only did God create marriage when he brought Eve to Adam, he created friendship. It was the Lord who blessed the friendship of David and Jonathan. And Jesus himself blessed the friendship of those four unnamed guys who wanted nothing more was to make sure that their friend was made whole. And the Lord will bless our friendships if we view them through his eyes and not through our own. Now, as we've seen, our friendships need to center on God. Okay? We need to encourage each other in the Lord at all times. As has been said by many, once the vertical relationship between us and the Lord is well established, the horizontal relationships fall into place. Not even an issue. 
We need to be loyal. Now, what does that mean? What exactly is loyalty? Well, I'll tell you one thing. It's not. It doesn't mean that you're a yes man, agreeing with every single thing your friend has to say, whether it's true or not. No. Sometimes being loyal means to be the most accurate mirror your friend has. To let your friend know, not only when things are going good and when they're doing right, but when they're doing something wrong. And it's a two-way street. A loyal friend will accept correction and not get hurt or insulted by it. Being a loyal friend means to stand beside them, praying for them, praying with them when the way goes rough. And yes, it may include driving up to Baker at 2 in the morning to bail them out of some uh, jam that they got themselves into. Then there's trust. Now, this is a hard one. All of us pretty much have been betrayed by friends at some point in the past, with some of these betrayals being worse than others. And I think that those who have been through divorce can definitely vouch for this. Did Jesus say, though, in John fifteen thirteen? remember I told you to keep that in mind, did he say, greater love has no one than this than to lay one's down, down one's life for his friends, except for those who might betray me or deny that they know me? Did he say that? No, it doesn't say it in my Bible either. Remember, when he said those words, and he said that all those disciples were friends, well, let's go through the list. Who was there? Judas, who knew he was going to betray Jesus. Peter, whom Jesus knew was going to deny him three times. Then all those other disciples, except for John, who took off when he got arrested. And only John managed to stick around for the crucifixion. No, there are no exceptions to that. We have to trust him. The love of Christ. That love of Christ, and by default, our own love, and that loyalty has to be unconditional. And it's hard. Sorry, guys, we're human. People are going to betray us. People are going to hurt us. It's going to happen. But as believers, we have to understand that God loves them and I have to love them as much as God loves them. You have to see through his eyes. And even though maybe they're no longer our friends, we still have to love them. As hard as it is. But that's our job. Not only should that idea keep us from being the friends we should be, this should also help us to form new friendships. You see, all our friends, especially as Christians, all our friends are here for a reason. Let me quote C.S. Lewis again. This one I do agree with his statement. In friendship, we think we have chosen our peers. In reality, a few years difference in the dates of our births, a few more miles between certain houses, the choice of one university instead of another, then the accident of a topic being raised or not raised at the first meeting, any of these chances might keep us apart. But for a Christian, there are, strictly speaking, no chances. A secret master of ceremonies has been at work. Christ, who said to the disciples, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, can truly say to every group of Christian friends, you have not chosen one another but I have chosen you for one another. 
The friendship is not a reward for our discriminating good taste and finding one another out. It is the instrument by which God reveals to each of us the beauties of others. That's comforting. This person who's coming into my life, God put him there. Doesn't matter. Maybe bad things could happen. We don't care. God put him there. We need to be loyal to that. Lastly, friendships are exercises in self-sacrifice. Remember, Paul told us to regard one another as more important as ourselves. That means I have your back. That means you have my back. If friends watch out for each other in love, in loyalty, in trust, God's going to bless them and keep them, both of them through thick and thin. And that's a comforting thought. And I'd like to close kind of with this following thought. When we honestly ask ourselves which person in our lives mean most to us, We often find it is those who, instead of giving advice, solutions, or cures, have chosen rather to share our pain, to touch our words, our wounds, with a warm and tender hand. The friend who can be silent with us in a moment of despair or confusion, who can stay with us in an hour of grief and bereavement, who can tolerate not knowing, not curing, not healing, and face with us the reality of our powerlessness. That is a true friend that cares. Now you may wonder, why are you so emotional about this? Because 20 years ago, I went through that when my wife died. And those were the friends I valued the most. Just being there. Be there for your friends no matter what. Let's bow our heads, please. We all have a friend, though, who fits this bill. And that's our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In those dark times, he is there with us. Sometimes not speaking. But the peace that he gives to us speaks volumes, allowing us to know that we are not alone. And as was the case with the disciples, he wants that friendship with all of us, no matter what we've done or what we're going to do. This is truly a friend that is always loyal, always trustworthy, always unconditional, but it's up to us to accept that friendship, turning away our sins and giving our lives to him. Tonight, as we have our heads bowed and our eyes closed. I want to give you that offer of that wonderful friendship that God has given us with his son, Christ Jesus. If you're here tonight and you don't really understand that peace that comes with a true friend who loves you no matter what, a true friend that gave his life for you so you didn't have to spend eternity in hell, if you truly want to know this friend of mine, friend of every believer in this room, please raise your hand and we'll pray for you. Anyone tonight? Well, that's good. We're all family tonight. 
but there's more. Secondly, if there's anyone out there who's going through a trial, and you need not only to feel God's friendship, you need to feel the friendship of the body of Christ. I want you to stand at this time. And if you stand, I want those people around you to just put their hands on you. Let them show you their friendship, their caring. So if you're going through a trial, you're going through a hard time, or if you're just even battling trust of friends, just go ahead and stand. And those around, those who are standing, please put your hands on them now, because we're going to pray. Those in the way back, come a little forward so you can feel the friendship of our God. Father, we praise you and we thank you that you are our friend, that you loved us so much that you gave your son to die for our sins. Tonight, Father, I stand with all these who are standing before you, who are dealing with a trial, going through that dark place, and they need you by their sides. Now, I ask you, Father, just pour your spirit upon them and pour your peace and comfort upon them at this time and let them know that those of the body of Christ that you have placed here for them, that they are here for them truly. We ask you, Father, just be with us tonight to uphold one another as you commanded us. And we ask you, Father, to help us to be the friends that you want us to be, the loyal, the faithful, the trusting. We want to be like you, Father. And we give it all to you now, in Jesus' name. Amen.